Welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations in executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. Welcome to episode number 12 of the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus, and today I am joined by our guest, Adam Bardwell, a military veteran and security professional and also a nationally registered paramedic. Adam is uh, responsible for supervising active worldwide security operations at Global Rescue. And prior to joining Global Rescue, he served as a Special Forces Medical Sergeant, where he supervised in tactical combat casualty care, dive medicine, prolonged field care, and point of injury care throughout the world. Adam, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Um, We've been talking back and forth for a a little bit of time here, and uh, it's just great to have you on to share some of your insights into executive protection, security operations, some evac stuff that you guys do and have going on around the world. Um, And I just think there's going to be a lot of benefit for uh, our listening audience today. Yeah, man, dude, thanks for having me on. Glad to see the stash is still just A plus all the way, man. Um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I, I think there's a lot of opportunities to uh, to really kind of expand what you're offering your clients, just different ways to mitigate certain risks, you know, and really maximize like how we're going to prevent worst case scenario. You know what I mean? Because that's what we do, right? If you're in security, you're in crisis risk management, that's what you're trying to do all the time is prevent bad things from happening. So like, hey, how do we do that more? How do we fill those holes? And you know, medicine is a huge way to bridge that gap, especially when you mix it with great tactics. So yeah, man, excited to talk about it. Absolutely, man. Yeah, security. Uh, we we uh, problem solve. We, you know, avoid and we minimize. I mean, those are kind of the three big things. And of course, in with that comes the medical component. And uh, I mean, early on in my journey, um, I d- certainly fell into the camp of hey, if it's going to be an eight-hour medical course or a four-hour to shooting block, uh, I'm going to go spend the money at the shooting block. Sure. Because when you're young and you know, new to the game, uh, what do you want to do most? You want to get as many uh, reps behind that gun. But then as you learn, if you're going to put bullets into people, you need to figure out how to plug holes in people as well. So, uh, and there's, yep. and then that's just the beginning of a journey of medical. And as you know, you've taken a deep dive yourself. So I'd love to give that perspective for our listeners today. But where do we start with this? Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, uh, kind of how you got into deciding to serve in the U.S. military. It seems like there's less and less qualified candidates each year, and uh, less and less of those qualified candidates are even interested in serving in the military. So we'd love to hear about your journey there and then your transition over into the private sector and into what you do today to uh, save and protect people. Sure, man. Yeah. So I, I got in the military. Um, I was I enlisted when I was I really tried to go in at 17. That's all I ever really wanted to do. I was trying to get in the Marine Corps. So my mom signed me in mad young um, and they wouldn't take me for medical reasons and stuff like that. So it was, it was kind of a battle uh, to get into the army. So it took over a year and a half before I was able to ship for basic um, and went in as a you know 19 Delta, which is a Cav scout. Uh, no medical background. Uh, just very, you know, I thought it was going to be kind of different than it actually was, but it's a reconnaissance based job. And, you know, and from there, I, I kind of had some opportunities to kind of work with some guys in the special operations community, uh, through various schools and and things like that, you know, just interacting with them and found out, you know, about becoming a green beret. Um, so in 2014, I went to selection, got picked up for, uh, special forces as a, actually I was supposed to be a weapons sergeant. 
Um, so, cause that's my pack. I really enjoy guns and things of that nature. Like I love shooting. So, uh, but that didn't end up, I ended up actually after, after going halfway through the course, I like asked to, to switch to medicine because, you know, growing up, I'd spent a lot of time in and out of hospitals. Um, I'm a cancer survivor. Um, when I was 10, I had cancer. So I was always in and out of hospitals and I felt very comfortable there. You know, I kind of saw how beneficial medicine can be or how beneficial medicine is and how done right with right bedside manner and compassion and empathy, you know, you can really, really, really change some lives and, and stuff like that. Like my, my medical team is, you know, when I was going through chemo and things so like when I was going through all that really showed me support and, uh, that changed the trajectory. So like later on down, down the line, that seed would kind of, kind of blossom and bloom, um, into something cool. Uh, so I, I, long story short, I was successful in, um, in, in my, my endeavors to become a green beret. And I spent some time in third, uh, third group out of Fort Bragg, um, as a, as a, as a medic on uh, a maritime operations team, got a, got uh, experience operating in Syria, um, as well as some other places, um, uh, in the world, uh, uh, like Chad. Um, so yeah, so been to some cool places, had some cool opportunities, uh, you know, treated patients in all types of different scenarios and, and settings, uh, you know, had some amazing training along the way, really got to see how important, you know, this piece fits, you know, whether it's combat operations or executive protection operations, you know, how medicine can be best applied, um, and th- so it's been, it's been a wild ride, man. And so I, I actually had to medically retire, um, when I medically retired, um, you know, I was at 11 years, felt like I could shoot, move, communicate, medicate at a, you know, at a really high level. Unfortunately, my body had other plans for me, so I had to call it quits. Um, and, and luckily during that process, you know, medical retirement process, um, I, I found global rescue and, uh, I actually came onto their medical operations side. So what, you know, what Global Rescue does is it's a corporate um, travel crisis risk management company uh, that specializes in both medical and security um, crisis and incidents worldwide. Um, I would say a bulk of what we do is very heavily on the medical side, a lot of travel advisory, bedside deployments, um, air ambulance coordination, um, just really overall, almost like a medical concierge in a lot of ways. And it's really super cost effective and a great investment for people. So check us out. Um, so I started over there as a paramedic for them, um, doing, you know, these, these evacs off, you know, coordinating evacuations, uh, and, you know, did a couple medical escorts and just managing that side. And then, uh, in July, I moved over to the security side, um, where we were, you know, where we do a lot of executive protection liaising, uh, pre-travel coordination and risk, you know, risk mitigation and intelligence reporting um, and things like that, just to make sure uh, people are going to oftentimes very dangerous, austere locations, um, whether it's just, you know, hunting in the, in the bush of, of Africa, you know, or, or, or some country, you know, on the continent of Africa can be you know, pretty risky. So we do a lot of the pre-research for people who are doing things like that um, and just make sure that they're going to be in safe areas. And so it's, it's, a, it's a really fun, really uh, dynamic job still get to hang on to that medical piece and, and I'm doing that every day. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's been great, man. I, I appreciate that perspective. Um, going from, you know, your journey in the military and taking kind of an unexpected end, uh, the medical retirement, which, um, you know, whether you're law enforcement, military or other, um, you don't really see that when you start as, as your end. Right. And, and we all get bumps and bruises along the way. And sometimes those bumps and bruises turn into more. Sure. Um, I think it's great that you found global rescue kind of as you were transitioning through the door. I mean, you're a veteran, 
Um, and we both have, you know, large networks of veterans and, and it can be a difficult transition. And I think, sure. um, if you have the medical background, there's a lot of, um, medical opportunities throughout, you know, security management, executive protection and the like. Um, and even if you don't have that medical perspective or the, or the background as a veteran, you have a lot of transferable skills in security management and executive protection. So we, we talk about transition a lot on this podcast. And I just think, uh, if there's somebody that is looking for that transition, um, Adam is one of your guys there, and he's got a deep bench of uh, of experts and transition uh, guys who've done that. Um, so just a little side note there before we get into the fun stuff like building medical kits and talking about protecting your protectee from, from some of the other hazards that aren't necessarily um, forefront in everybody's mind. But backing up a little bit, um, you know, talking about Global Rescue and what you guys do. Um, I was just a couple weeks ago sitting down at dinner with a buddy of mine who'd flown into town um, to do an advance and then solo protection for his client. And it kind of blew my mind. Um, I won't mention where he works right now because I don't want to out the company, but a major organization. And uh, when they travel, they have one, maybe two executive protection agents. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, getting into this, if you're new or if, uh, if you don't know some of the corporate game, uh, teams aren't as big as, as you assume, you know, not everybody has the Elon Musk um, capacity or the Facebook capacity where, where they've got multiple agents um, and, and big teams. Um, so for those solo practitioners, right, who maybe don't have as deep of a medical background, have taken a couple of TECC courses, you know, maybe uh, light medical courses here and there, um, no AED, but maybe don't have one available. Um, what do you recommend? What are some of the things that Global Rescue does to liaison with those solo practitioners? Because again, very few times are you just going to be stagnant at an office place and straight home. A lot of these executives travel, and that's something you guys specialize in is assisting executive protection teams or solo practitioners in having now a medical yep. branch that can assist them when they do have that rough day with a client that is beyond their own capacity. What do you guys provide and how do you do that? Yeah, so what we do and what, what's unique about us is when we are doing those liaisoning, which is often, you know, mainly international. Um, so there's certain constraints we have to work under depending on the country we're going. I'm always unarmed. So we are, I'm purely the liaison. Um, however, I'm also there as a paramedic light. So, so Adam, in this context, as a, as kind of a liaison of sorts, as you're traveling with your, your client, even as a security advisor, uh, most guys aren't able to travel with uh, weapons overseas. Um, what are the different uh, constraints uh, when you're in this role overseas? It depends. And it's really kind of a legal gray area in a lot of ways, because some countries do not want other people practicing medicine. I like to come from a point where it's not like, hey, I'm here to treat people. Um, really just be here to kind of uh, be a fail safe. And those are things you have to consider as well, going through customs. And, and, and those are things you need to consider. So you can't bring certain drugs, certain things that you would normally have with you. So your, your risk is elevated. However, um, you may not be able to, to provide certain uh, medications that you normally would in the United States or whatever state you're licensed in. But you know you can still add a ton of value just in the planning piece, right? Like we have a plan for how to get our patient not only to the local hospital, but from the local hospital back to their hospital of choice in the States. So like, that's a huge, huge piece. That's, that's actually like we plan for. Um, so if you're not, if you're not thinking like that, uh, in terms of a med plan, that's something you want to start incorporating to really benefit your client. Because if something goes wrong, especially with our corporate travelers, we know Doc Yergas 
has been has talked about it um, at ad nauseum is is they're in bad health. So like we gotta, you know, we gotta mitigate that. Those are those are real life credible medical threats that can potentially happen. So if you're traveling too, you're sitting down for hours and hours and, you know, and the guy's in bad health, he could throw an air ambulance, you know, an air embolism or something, something like that. Um, just from flying, a lot of people are on Ambien or, or they're taking new antibiotics. They're taking things that affect them poorly and they're traveling tired. So like you need to have a, a, an answer and an answer quick. If somebody has an issue like that, because that's what they're paying you for. So like, if you don't even know where the nearest hospital is or nearest hospitals for whatever route you're doing that day. You need to know that, hey, north of this essentially phase line, it's this hospital if, if we need to, to divert change. Or south of this phase line, it's this one. What, what's, what do they have at that hospital? Oh, it's equivalent of a, we use joint credited international hospitals. For us, um, you know, this is a accredited international. I know that it's going to be a close to or equivalent to a level one trauma center in the United States. Um, that's how in-depth you should go. I know that if my guy appears to be having a cardiac episode, if just you don't need to be a medic, you just need to be able to recognize like, hey, I need this. This guy needs a hospital with a cath lab, and so those are things where, hey, am I going to go to the nearest hospital ER, or am I going to maybe push on another ten minutes to get him to the hospital that I know can treat this ailment? Um, so those are, you know, how I approach my planning and and my like that's how we do it at Global Rescue. So it's 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 one of those things. Think worst case scenario. Can you mitigate? Can you prevent? Well, not always. No, we can't always prevent, but we can mitigate, right? And then maximize life-saving capabilities. Absolutely. And I think we're having this conversation at an important time. Um, a lot of these COVID restrictions internationally are being lifted, domestically are being lifted. People are starting to travel more. Um, I think within the last three years, a whole bunch of people have gotten in the executive protection game right. and it turned into a residential protection gig. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a lot more of just stay home, protect the house, protect the client when he's at the house and very limited travel the last couple of years. And I think we're seeing a change to where now these individuals have been cooped up for a couple of years. The ones who haven't been traveling are going to want to start traveling. The teams who haven't been traveling much right. are going to be probably traveling more and farther. And uh, you have an interesting perspective on that international component. It's going to be a swath of individuals who haven't traveled you know, internationally with their client. What are some things medically that domestically we maybe take for granted internationally, you need to plan differently for, um, as opposed to here at home. So yeah, internationally, it could completely vary. I mean, it is, you know, I like to kind of break it into three separate categories. Like, let's say, you know, your category one is, you know, your first world country response. You can expect that in probably Europe, you know, a, a lot of places in Europe, not every place, but you're going to have a relatively quick ambulance response time. About seven to 14 minutes is the average. So those are things where if you're in countries like Mexico, or somewhere where you have a tendency to become complacent, where you're doing the same riskier things that you would do at home, like, I don't know, like go off a rope swing at some sketchy lake, you know, might not be a great idea with your, you know, maybe those are things we even want to t- tell our clients maybe not to do. But we have to understand, hey, 7, 14 minutes in the United States could be hours outside of it. So of evacuation times or even just higher echelon care, right? Like if you only have TECC, your next echelon would, you know, would be a paramedic. So like if if you can't get that within 7 to 14 minutes, what are you going to do between then? Or how are are you how are you going to to transport your casualty what's your plan? And so that's what you need to plan for is like the that piece where I don't have the capabilities to treat, but I have the capabilities to minimize how much time 
between point of injury and treatment. So like that's that's where an EP agent can really separate themselves is like minimize time. You can't you can train to treat to a certain level, but like am I planning? Do I have a good point of injury to next echelon of care plan? Man, that's huge. Um, and again, like you said, you categorize this, you know, the the world into kind of three parts or components, right? What do you can expect like to home, what you can expect maybe a little bit degraded to what we have here in the United States. And then there's the third layer, which is austerior environments. And I know that's something that you are um, intimately familiar with, having operated in, in a few, if not more than a few. And uh, so for those clients or for those executive protection agents who have clients who need to go to places that are way off the beaten path, um, you know, way beyond the differences of a Mexico or a second tier country, somewhere where you're going to have significant complications and the client needs to go there, uh, whether it's business related or for whatever reason, what is the most important thing that an EP agent who doesn't have the background that you do, isn't a, a paramedic, doesn't have that training and experience, is it liaisoning with a company like yours that can provide that overlayer? Is it making sure that in-country assets are in place and a good advance is there? What are some of the things that they can really leverage out of their own repertoire to make sure that that trip is successful? Sure. Well, things you can always do to, you know, you don't need to have any medical qualification to start Googling hospitals in your, in your AO. Um, that's something that you can always, that just helps you. It helps you learn. You know, even if, if you, there's something you don't understand on the website it says, oh, like this is, this has cardiac cath. What's cardiac cath lab? Like, oh, that's, you know, for heart issues or, you know, and so those are things that will help you kind of piece things together to recognize sooner for your client. Um, and, and like I said, provide them with a solution. Well, let's see what else, what's something that you think, Ron? Yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing is is more from a logistical perspective, right? If you're really going to be out there um, and, and you guys deal with this with clients who uh, are more of that adventure type, right? If you're going somewhere with no cell reception or limited cell reception, um, again, logistics, how do you minimize time? And, and I think that's the biggest thing. Um, and, uh, and you guys are experts at that and, and putting together logistics, having that layer of security in a medical perspective to close that gap. Mm -hmm. So your company has guys who are, you know, hikers, climbers, travelers, you know, that category of individual where they're going to be in a wilderness environment or a mountain-esque environment. Um, if you're going as an EP agent and you don't have those exact climbing skills, you don't have those specific uh, adventure skills, whatever it may be, how do you leverage a company like yours for that evac when they do have something go sideways from a medical perspective? Right. Whether it's self-induced or, you know, injury caused by the activity itself. I would say that this applies not only to just like EP agents who could potentially find themselves escorting somebody, you know, on, on one of these trips or expeditions or whatever, but really just for travelers in general, right? Like there's not always going to be necessarily a security piece to that, you know, and separate to that, it, it all kind of falls into just proper planning and preparation, regardless of what it is, right? So like, and, and this is just fundamental planning, which, you know, we, we model our planning off the military planning process, almost identical. I, that's how I, that's how I plan situation, mission, execution, you know, communications, and then sustainment. Sergeant Major Reed Sugar Cookie, excuse me, I got four and five confused. Sorry, Rangers, but it's been a little bit. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like, you know, it just falls on, on proper planning. So if you're going to these environments, do you have the proper communication plan? Why is that important? Because if you're out of cell phone service, someone breaks a leg, you better have satellite capable devices. 
so you can activate that next hire echelon of care, right? And that goes for anyone, whether you're traveling solo with a buddy, whether it's part of executive protection, does not matter. That's just basic, right? What you've seen it in like, what is it, 127 hours? When you don't plan properly, you pay the price. So number one, communications. Always, that's like the biggest tool. Obviously, we could stop bleeds, but if we can't evac or get them out, now what? So that's like the next piece. Um, the other thing is know the context of, of how a certain injury can be amplified. Like understand that whatever setting you're, you're in, like a broken ankle at sea level is different than a broken ankle at 18,000 feet. Or like, obviously like climbers know that well, or just even off the beaten path in you know, deep woods, Wyoming, a broken ankle, you know, 20 miles from a trailhead could be deadly. Um, so those are things understand like what your worst case scenario is, and then just have a plan to be able to get yourself out of it. Most people neglect it. And it's so common with so many travelers with they'll, they'll get hurt in like, you know, a place like Baja, California, which is like a dry hole for, for helicopters. And they'll call us and they would like a helicopter or something along like that. And I'm like, there's no, there's no helicopters in that area. We have to get you a ground ambulance. And now it's a four or five hour endeavor, you know, and someone's severely hurt. So like, those are things that you have to understand. And those are things that like, you can always call. And like when you're, you're going with a company like us, we'll, we'll try to answer questions as best we can like that. We'll be like, Hey, I'm going here. Well, and so I like, I love to see when our travelers are doing their research, right? Their pre-mission planning, their G2 intelligence drives operations is the old army saying. So it's, it's true. It should. And, and if you're doing dangerous things that requires planning, so plan properly. Um, so understand the context of injuries, like in what and how that applies. And that goes for your principles or just for you in general as a good international traveler. Um, and number three, um, tell people where you're going. Gotwas are important. Make sure that your other EP teams know where you're going. Hey, you know, I got some VIP client. We're in Colorado Springs. He wants to go walk Garden of the Gods. Maybe, sh- you know, share location, things like that to just that make battle tracking easier. You know, and then if you are going to do these types of things, try and, you know, walking Garden of the Gods with a 75-year-old guy is a lot different than going and walking it with like maybe a VIP client who's 23 years old. So like, you know, risk changes. It's not the same. Not all our clients are the same. We have to tailor things, mold um, how we're, you know, how we're treating each client because each operation is different. So let's plan it differently and let's provide, like I said, the best product. And not only the protection piece is, is a part of it, but people feel like they have an elevated threat for a reason. So they're, they're hiring you for a reason. So mitigate all threats, including medical. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think if, if you're, if you're focusing on, on threat mitigation, you're leaving out the medical component. Um, you're far more likely to have a medical emergency than you are really anything else. Um, you're far more likely to pull out, you know, a tourniquet or an AED than you are pulling your weapon on somebody. I mean, just statistically, when we look at the incidents that happen in security management or executive protection, um, and kind of turning the corner on that conversation, um, you know, clients are at the end of the day, normal people like everybody else, right? We all have medical needs, we all have medical histories. Um, you know, I love working with other companies when you're contracting with them and the first thing out of their mouth is, what's the pre-existing history, medical history of the client? Right. And it's like, man, 
you absolutely get it um, because it's important. If you're planning for everything else, for that, you know, IED roadside bomb um, in the middle of downtown Los Angeles, but you haven't planned for an individual who has a, a bee allergy and, and you don't know what to do. What? So Exactly. Our, the guns that are carried are for one thing, right? And that's for, that's for eliminating a threat, right? We, should, we do everything on the front end to prevent that from happening. And you can plan for that. The thing you can't plan for is that little bee that comes over and nails that little seven-year-old that you have. And now you're, you have an anaphylaxic episode. So like you have to be ready to respond to that and respond to it quickly. Um, the same way you train hard skills in shooting, you know, medicine's the new hard skill. Like that's a battle drill. You know, that's a battle drill. Medicine, like anaphylaxis is a battle drill the same way that react to contact is. Absolutely. Um, and you better, you, you, you know, people need to think about it like that. Yep. And, uh, and again, if you haven't had the advantage point to watch somebody go into anaphylactic shock off of a bee sting or another type of allergy, whether it's a nut allergy, tree nut allergies, any, anything, I mean, the, the amount of allergies that are out there these days, as opposed to 50, hundred years ago, um, just astronomical. Yep. And I mean, it's just something that's a part of society today. Um, and much like that, the heart disease, that's just rampant throughout society. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I know there's, there's constant conversation with the more affordability of these AEDs out there. Um, if you're not trained up on one, you should be, yep. if your team doesn't have access to one, find out and have a really thoughtful discussion with your client on the benefits for having one. And I mean, I'm going to let you, let you speak a little bit on that. Um, because, you know, it's one thing if I'm droning on about, you know, these types of things, but having somebody with your background to explain, you know, the, when we think of kit, we think of, you know, tourniquets and that's really kind of maybe some other few other items, you know, but that's kind of forefront. Everybody carries a tourniquet, but if you're going to have a medical emergency these days with, with the heart disease that's out there, you know, the AED is probably going to be more widely used than a tourniquet definitely in, a, in, an, in an urban environment. So I'll, I'll let you speak a little bit on, on some of these maybe other items that aren't forefront in everybody's mind that are extremely beneficial to different types of clients. You know, I, I think I think being able to advertise too that you are like, hey, we are AED, all our, all our agents are AED certified, you know, um, within, you know, the AHA standards, either ACLS or, or BLS. Uh, I think BLS would be a great one. Those are great things that you should be getting. Um, but it also makes you more marketable too, because you're going, Hey, you have a heart attack. I'm going to be able to, to do basically what the hospital can do right then and there. And like early defib is the only thing to really increase the survival of, of a heart attack. Because once you start doing chest compressions on people, me personally, I've, I've actually never been in a successful like resuscitation of anyone. I don't know if like I ju- I'm just bad luck or whatever, but um, so it's a very serious thing. Like people die and they die often from it. Like you said, you know, heart disease is rampant in this country and, and it's, and it's just our client population, you know, health average is quite a bit different than you see on the military side. So, um, an AAD will save a life. Absolutely. And it is absolutely something, I think they're like two grand, you know, they're not super expensive. Um, and they're well worth their investment. Absolutely. That's my two cents on, on AADs, man. Well, personally, I've never been in a situation where I've been doing chest compressions and I've thought to myself, man, you know what? I don't want an AED around me, right? The first thing in my mind, because of course, in, in all the scenarios where I've had it, um, it hasn't been readily available, right? Right. And uh, that's just, you know, unluck of the draw. Um, and they've been in my law enforcement capacity. And it's like, I still don't understand how we're not outfitted with AEDs in every shop. Yep. Um, but it, But it's, you got what you got. If you don't have an AED, you better know chest compressions. You better be up to date on all that stuff. Um, and again, 
time, you better have good logistics to get somebody moving. So Exactly. And th- these are things too, like I said, it's a battle drill. And, and for those of you who don't know what an AED is, it's an automated external defibrillator. So it's like what you see in ER back in the day. Where like, Clear. You know, and then they shock people. So this device, in addition to chest compressions and proper airway management, um, will actually, it, it, it shocks the heart to restart the heart and break whatever arrhythmia is is going on. So that's, you can have that at point of injury or point of illness. You're doing very well. You're, you've already set yourself apart. Um, yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and I think a big thing about executive protection, especially the solo practitioners that are out there advertising themselves as an individual, mm-hmm. I think the ability to be as up on the medical component is really going to set you apart, like we've said earlier. Um, and, and I really want to kind of transition this conversation, you know, we're kind of taking this from the the macro over to the to the micro to the individual protector. And uh, I want to take just a brief pause for uh, to highlight an event that's going to be going on next month. Uh, but then I want to bring it back. I want to talk about for that individual practitioner. Um, let's talk a little bit about medical kit. And so we'll take a brief pause. We'll bring it back. Everybody stand by. We'll be back with Adam in just a moment. Bodyguards for Kids is a two-day fundraising event on March 18th and 19th in support of the Children of St. Jude's Medical Center. Join the Global Security and Protection Group as we support and attend this two-day virtual educational event. During this event, 15 subject matter experts from an array of different countries will share their expertise on a variety of executive protection and security management topics, such as the history and development of protective intelligence, international travel risk management framework, sharpening soft skills, online due diligence, active shooter prevention, body language as a preventative tool in EP, threat assessments of mass killers, the employment lifecycle management to mitigate insider threats, standards for medical sponsorship and protective security, the role of intelligence in security operations, security industry recruitment, and more. The minimum donation to participate in this event is $39. The minimum donation for individuals to become sponsors is $250 and the minimum donation for companies who would like to support this event is $500. Your donation is your ticket to this event and your entrance into a raffle filled with cool gear and books from some of the industry's most recognized practitioners and thought leaders. For more information, search Bodyguards for Kids to access their event website. Welcome back, everybody. Again, this is the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. Uh, we are talking about the medical component today, and uh, I've got Adam Bardwell with us. And uh, again, military veteran, security professional, nationally registered paramedic, and uh, just in the know on the medical component to security management, executive protection, and even for your personal life. Um, even when we're not protecting clients, we've got loved ones that are around us, and we got ourselves to take care of. So, um, we've talked about some, some macro stuff, traveling internationally, some differences between the international scene, the domestic scene. Um, we've talked about the importance of AEDs and other medical devices. And, uh, now we want to talk about you as the protector, what is beneficial to have with you. We're going to talk about the fun, practical medical kit for executive protection and other security operations. So, uh, Adam, um, Let's say I'm a solo practitioner going into an urban environment, some big city, um, you know, access to medical hospitals and uh, treatment facilities, like you said, is on average eight to 12 minutes away. What do I need to have based on client needs um, that's going to get me 
in the best position to provide a medical service in that eight to 12 minute mark before higher levels of care can arrive. Okay, perfect. Um, what is your, what's, what's the, uh, I suppose, what's the nature of business? How old is my principal? Um, and what type of, are we just riding around town or do we have planned routes? We've got planned routes. You've done your advance. You've worked your your primary route. You've worked secondary routes. Um, your client is 45 years old with uh, heart disease background and uh, peanut allergy. Let's throw that in there. Perfect. Cool. Yeah. So we got peanut allergy. That's number well. Number one priority is this: along the routes, I'm going to identify my pay, my primary alternate contingency emergency hospitals. Right. So that's the medical side. I'm going to know all their addresses, um, and I'm going to have an idea of which part of the map, the Grand Theft Auto map, you know, which part of the map you're going to uh, use whatever hospitals. And those primary and alternate emergency hospitals they alternate based on movement and then also injury set as well. So that's number one. Number two. I'm always going to have my normal bleeder stuff with me, right? So I'm going to be running uh, cat tourniquets. Reason cat tourniquets are the best for, and I and I love soft T wides as well, and I'll get into that later. But for for personal um, application, the rigidity of the cat T just makes it that much easier for self application. So uh, the soft T wides are are softer, and, and I like to carry them for like in my actual aid bag for applying to other people. But I always carry cat T's on my person um, because, like I said, the rigidity. Because sometimes you'll if you if you need it, you know it's going to keep kind of rolling off your sleeve. Uh, you'll find that if you were to put you know one one versus the other, I would say that nine times out of ten you're going to find that the cat's easier for that situation. Some guys will say, well, you know, you can positional change to put on the tourniquet, or I can lean it up against something. But like, not all situations are going to be able to to provide that for you. Also, the positional change. If there's nothing to lean on and you have to go down and you're profusely bleeding, that positional change could put you out, put you unconscious. And now, guess what? Your tourniquet's not getting applied. So something more rigid, right? Cat. And then a lot of people say, oh, the windlass is weak, blah, 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 blah. I've heard of them breaking. There are, yes, that that's happened in the past. Um, the way I understand a lot of those is the tourniquets were poorly maintained. So they were out dust and debris, sunlight. So it's equipment. You have to maintenance it. You have to protect it. So cat T, person. Number two, uh, curl X. A lot of times we're operating as, as EP agents. We are operating under tight budgets, right? So I'm kind of going budget. I'm going budget. IFAC. I'm going personal, and then I'm going to talk about what I'll be carrying for the client. Um, so right now, this is just what I'm going to have on me as as a guy who carries a gun for a living in in a, in a city. Uh, Curlex is great, and it's just gauze. Um, I like Curlex because number one, it's cheap, and number two, there's multi use. So you can't like with Z-Pack gauze if you're cut for space, only does one thing. You can't apply that to somebody who gets burned, or um, you know if you have to clean something up. Like the Z-Pack is single use, so that's why Curlex. And and you can you can pack wounds with it. Uh, get your power balls, et cetera. Then I'm always carrying at least four inch ACE wrap. Once again, multi-use, you can do your inguinal, you know, inguinal injuries and all your pressure dressings. That's what you'll use to wrap it. So those are my th- three biggest for bleeders. Um, and like I said, they're multi-use. That Acrylex is great. Uh, and obviously there's other things you can carry, but I'm like I said, I'm going budget because I know that most dudes are and, and gals are buying their own equipment. So cats, ACE bandage, Curl X. And that's, that's fantastic. That's probably, you, I think cats are about 44 bucks. The rest of that stuff. I mean, you could, you could get for under a hundred bucks, you have like great stuff and you can even train with it. You could train with your cats, reuse them. Um, then I'm carrying, and if I'm solo, I'm not so focused on this. This is a consideration for EP teams to work out internally. This is something that I suggest 
on like the more like SOP side, when it comes to airway management, um, if you have guys with you that you're comfortable like surgically criking, cause so like, like I, I would consider me and what I'm saying I would do. And I'm not saying, I don't know if I don't, I don't really care. I'm just a paramedic. So you can pull my license for saying this, but like, I would let someone crike me, even though it's out of state, state line protocols or, or state, state protocols or whatever, if it's going to save my life, even if they're not a paramedic, but if they are an EP agent with the training. So those are things that you might want to consider working out internally. If you have guys who are former military medics, um, and have that background, that's something that you should be considering internally and be like, Hey man, like, I'm not going to sue you <laughs> type of thing. Um, but yeah, maybe we don't crike our clients, but between agents, that might be something you want to consider um, if you if ever needed. Okay, so that's mainly it on my like my person bleeder wise. Like, there's not much. Um, I don't I don't need much more than that uh, for a budget IFAC point of injury. So that's what I got. Um, we're not going to carry air like like airway stuff is dependent. Like I said, it's also expensive, and I don't. If you are going to carry an airway adjunct, I recommend you know. If if you're if you're able to and you're okay your your company is okay with it either a a little NPA nasal pharyngeal airway or a King LT for for various reasons and then because that's just this is not carried on my person but this would be in my truck but we'll get into that when we talk about the client so sorry hope you're good all right now we'll talk about the 45 year old is did you say he was diabetic uh, heart heart disease and a peanut allergy and a peanut allergy okay so. Basic stuff that I would be carrying anyways, right? If allowed the opportunity, I'm just an EP guy, no, no medical experience. Yep. So with this type of person, you always want to make sure you have CPR stuff. So pocket, a, a pocket face mask to do um, breaths with. So you don't have to worry. Maybe a little suction because if somebody codes, it gets nasty. And that's really the only way we can manage the airway a lot of times if, if you're, but you should be BLS as well. Cause we're assuming that you've already been to BLS, which should be required of all EP agents. Um, and yeah, so we, we, we're covering that kind of heart disease thing. Aspirin, baby aspirin. This, this guy starts getting chest pain. Um, we can give him a super simple thing of baby aspirin, maybe tame that chest pain. Don't know. Once again, you have to ensure that you're checking with your company protocols and what you're allowed to do. Uh, but, you know, sometimes if people do have bad, like, you know, angina or whatever, they kind of know how to manage it. So, but just, those are, those are things that you need to be ready for. Um, obviously peanut allergy. If you can't carry uh, EpiPens, you need to ensure that the principal has their EpiPens. So that's a, that's like non-negotiable. You're in my car today. I, I understand you're hiring me you have a peanut allergy, do you have your EpiPens? Like that, you know, obviously, you know, use it with more tact, but ensure that that's like a, a critical go, no go for you. Hey, you know, make sure we have our medicine. Um, same way that you wouldn't want a type one diabetic getting in, you know, into your car without their insulin for the day. Um, and I think I really hit the big ones, especially that are, would be different. And once again, I'm carrying bleeder stuff, extra bleeder stuff. Um, and then you have to be careful with what airway adjunct, if any, you're going to put in without that, but with good planning, you should only have, you should only really need like the really bad stuff at point of injury if you're non-medic, which is mainly massive hemorrhage. And, and then I think I, when I think that I think massive hemorrhage and I think heart attacks, um, from our level, that's from a basic level. Those are the things that you can add the most value to like relatively quick. I think a BLS class is a day or two. 
Now you're certified on that. If you can get AEDs, fantastic. Now we're carrying around pocket masks to be able to do um, mouth-to-mouth without getting yucky stuff. And we have a little bit of suction in case he throws it up or aspirates because we're pounding on his chest. And now we're calling 911 and we're, you know, we're executing our med plan. So that's how it goes. You know, that's what you want. You know, Adam, I, I love that you started that answer with what am I carrying, right? And I think it's the age-old adage, if you can't protect yourself, you can't protect anybody, right? And, uh, and so I think that that mindset and perspective you had of starting out with yourself was very important, right? If I'm not ready to win the day, I can't win the day for my client. Right. And uh, then moving to your clients, um, again, there's nothing to say. And again, logistics, right? What do we as EP agents? We're logistics masters. At, at the end of the day, we manage logistics for the clients and we minimize risk. And this is kind of the combination of two. There's nothing to say, like you said, the aspirin portion. They should know what they need if they've been dealing with certain medical conditions their entire life or what they're supposed to have. But it's up to us to have that other layer and say, hey, do you have X with you? Do you have Y with you? Do you have all the things you're supposed to have, whether it's an aspirin, whether it's uh, their EpiPen? And these people have a million things in their mind, and sometimes their medical health may be second or third or fourth or fifth. And so just reminding them, there's nothing to say you can't carry all those things for them. And if they're going to self-administer, that takes a lot of the legal issues for yourself out of it, right? If you can catch things. And again, awareness is beyond just security awareness, medical awareness as well. Right. Can I identify an active anaphylactic shock? Can I identify, you know, the early signs of a heart attack? Do I know my principal well enough to know when something's a little off? Right. Can I see those pre-indications? Um, we talk about pre-indicators a lot from a security perspective, but how about from a medical perspective? And I think you brought up a lot of important stuff there. And, and it's something too that can be drilled, right? Like you can train that scenario with little to no money, right? Like you can put a guy in an SUV and then like get it, you know, get a CPR dummy if you, if you have accessible or even just, I don't know, you could fashion something, you know, drive 30 minutes outside of a town and execute a med plan like that. Like have someone have a code and be like, what are we going to do? How far is an ambulance from this point? Okay, the ambulance is 30 minutes. The hospital's 30 minutes. Well, it looks like we're going to probably call for an intercept between A and B. Where would that intercept be? And then run that code, how you would do it with your EP team um, and in that vehicle to the intercept point, right? Do chest compressions in the back of that vehicle. Be like, whoa, that was bad. He, you know, we, we tried to do it in the back seat, but it didn't work. But we found out that if we laid the seats flat and, you know, and that's a battle drill, right? Like react to contact, react to heart attack. Okay. I know. Boom. All right. We're calling, Hey, team lead, you're, you're calling for intercept at whatever, wherever they want you chest compressions, you airway, Hey, fold the seats down, position the patient back here. Like it's a down driver drill. You know, that's how you can run that scenario with little to no cost overhead and just be like, yeah, dude, doing chest compressions this way doesn't work. They're not effective. How do we maximize that? That's what separates elite teams in any sense, dude. We can all punch holes in paper, right? We can shoot. Okay. Can you move? Sure. Can you communicate? You better. Well, shoot, move, communicate. Now you need to be able to medicate. So shoot, move, communicate, medicate, period, point blank. Absolutely. And how do you get that? Like you said, get those reps in get good reps in, in a controlled environment, right? Right. And, and again, shifting your own personal mindset away from, hey, I'm going to take an overabundance of shooting courses, right? I mean, you are a tantamount example of, I can just go out somewhere and lay holes on paper without having to go spend $1,500 and do it at a class, right? Right. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to go and self-improve. Same thing with medical, right? 
get a group of guys together, train some scenarios, yep. right? Do it in a controlled environment before it's done in real life. Right. Um, and you're going to find yourself moving through things a lot smoother because you've already not only had it up here in your mindset, but you've also played it out in a scenario-based training, which I think is huge. Um, one of my favorite trainings was uh, Progressive Force Concepts. They had a a residential security training and incorporated medical into that, you know, and, and here's the scenario and, and uh, I'll throw it out for our, for our listeners real quick. The scenario is you walk into a room and there is a fire and the chef has started some sort of fire and he ends up on the other side with a, with a uh, blood trauma wound. And here you are, you got to move through the scenario. What are you doing first? Well, you got to put out the fire, right? So you're moving through, extinguish the fire with a fire extinguisher. Mm-hmm. And now you got to move to your client. Well, what are you going to do, right? You're going to keep them in place. Is it safe enough to keep them in an environment? Can you move them? Should you move them? Um, these were all things done in a controlled environment. And what was the benefit of that? A debrief at the end of it. What went right? What went wrong? What did I mess up on? What could I have done better? Right, 100%. And you don't get those opportunities in real life to take a time out or when you're debriefing, it's because something's gone really bad or really right, but you don't want to leave that to real life. You don't want to figure it out there. You don't want to play the game yep. while you're still learning. I had a, uh, I had, I had a, uh, a buddy of mine who, you know, he's a, he was a warrant officer, SF warrant officer. He'd been part of a really nasty green on blue, which is, um, you know, they were, they were ambushed, um, by, you know, people who were by false flags really. And, you know, by the part, by the partner force more or less, you know, and, and, what he talked about, what he said with me resonated very heavily. He was a medic himself when he before he went war. And he said, ruthless AARs are the only way to prevent like basically like loss of life. Like you need to sit down after every training iteration, regardless of what it is, especially when it's involving casualties, and ruthlessly pick apart what you did right, what you did wrong, and how you can do it better next time. And that's that's like stuck with me forever. Um, and it's true. Like, don't bull, don't bullshit and be like, Oh, we're good. We're, you know, we're, you know, we're pipe hitters. Like, no, put yourself under stress, run your, run, run your teams through scenarios and be real about it. Right. Don't just talk about it. And that's the only way. And I understand, you know, on on the private side, we're operating like under strict budgets. Oftentimes you're paying for your own training, but if you can get creative you, you, I mean, in medicine can be medical, tactical medical training or atypical, you know, uh, having a treat in cars and things like that without, even, you know, without even bullets, just different scenarios. You can train those cheap and you can train them effectively and you could pick it apart so that when the next, like when that, when that happens for real, you're like, thank God, thank God we, we did that that one time, you know? I knew that move, like folding the seats down was critical. Like, and we had to do it right away before we, before we even started chest compressions to ensure that our chest compressions would be effective. Take the 10 second seat fold down, you know, to position your patient properly rather than start chest compressions, have them be terrible for five minutes and then realize they're terrible. And now you got to F with the seat in route. So those are things that you work out in training, right? You identify that it's called efficiency. You, 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 you know, your economy of motion. So that's my, that's my two cents. I'll get off my soapbox about training. <laughs> the training component is extremely valuable to 
um, effective field operations. And you can't get one without the other. And uh, mm-hmm. like I, we had a pretty rough debrief um, again in, in, in my law enforcement hat a couple weeks ago. And uh, at the end of it, we explained to this new new individual, we're not doing this just to put you on blast, right? We're doing this because the next time you do this in a real life environment, you're going to do it better. And I mean, having the right team around you to have those honest conversations right? Um, and to do it in a way that's going to build up your team and have you guys performing at that elite level that you should be performing at if you have a client, um, it, it, there's only benefit in that. And it's very uncomfortable. Right. It's very uncomfortable to be the one that everybody's putting pointing fingers at justifiably. Right. Um, but you gotta you gotta take that and 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 just roll with it and realize it's gonna make you better. Right. Um so on that note, um you've had this experience, I'm sure, as well. Sure. You can sit all day in a in a classroom and practice putting a tourniquet on, and then you go into a scenario based training and it's all messed up and uh you realize, holy smokes. I need to practice more putting a tourniquet on in a in a unsafe environment, right? Um, you can practice these things just sitting there, you know, in the seat next to your your training partner, and oh man, it's easy to put a tourniquet on. Right. Next thing you know, you got a guy laying there that's all messed up in a weird position and dead weight because no longer are you getting the responses that you're used to from a, an individual that's there and helping you through the situation. Um, much rather having that in a training environment where it's a scenario based and then at the end of it cut let's talk about what happened instead of it's real life and that client is now being taken away in an ambulance and you're sitting there going i wish i had done this and role played this beforehand yep and that actually brings up kind of a good point that i was thinking too is is discreet little things like like tubular nylon goes a long way cuz it's discreet it doesn't interfere with your client's daily op like whatever they're doing and let's say you have to load and go and you're talking about that dead weight Hey, we practice this. I know how to make a, a, a hasty litter out of type three, you know, or tubular nylon, right? Which is you basically cut off 24 feet, cross it over itself. And now you have these handles that you can lay under the patient. You and a buddy can just boop. And it makes that, those dead weight things a bit more efficient. Or like if you, if you're like at the garden of the gods, the guy goes down, you got to bring him to the trailhead. Well, Hey, now my EP agents, we can, we can get up there and bring him down to meet the ambulance. So the ambulance could be there and treat him quicker. So there's a million ways to mitigate and maximize, right? Mitigate and then maximize. Like that's what we do. But I didn't mean, I just saw an opportunity there to talk maybe how we can get rid of that dead weight and and do it in a discreet way that fits the EP mission. And tubular nylon is a great, great, great way. No, I'm glad you brought that up. And and again, in the context of majority of practitioners uh, across the country are still doing solo practitioner. You know, you're doing solo protecting. Um, a lot of clients aren't wanting to spend the budget for full security teams. Uh, a lot of corporate clients are just playing it, you know, kind of close to the chest and saying, hey, uh, we're just going to send one guy with them. That's all we need. Right. Um, but again, what do you do when you find yourself in a position where, you know, two or three guys would be really good when a client goes down and there's, you know, absolute dead weight and you're not getting any assistance from that client? That's a great solution right there. Mm-hmm. Carrying things that are out of the box that, uh, that only come with training and experience. And where are you going to get that? going to train with people, learning what works from people who have experienced things, have had those epiphany moments and the transfer of knowledge. Um, and so on that one last uh, kind of note that I'd like to bring up is a little bit of the networking, right? You're you're out there on LinkedIn. Uh, you've got a strong network yourself. Um, what can individuals do when they're on their own to leverage their knowledge base through networking? Yeah, dude, I, LinkedIn's been a huge, huge tool, man. Like it is... It, it's a great way to put yourself out there to sell yourself, right? Like 
you know, as, as solo, you know, if you're in a solo EP agent, how do you set yourself apart? You know, are you, are you, are you shooting? Are you, are you training hand to hand? Are you, and then are you advertising that? Cause that's what you're selling, right? I, I, I work hard every single day to ensure that when global rescue is hired, right. And I go to provide like unarmed security protection. Um, I'm going to be able to provide a, a solution as best as I can. Cause I was training for that. Right. Like if, if it ever, God forbid, worst case scenario, I'm training for, I'm remaining proficient with my firearm. God forbid, I got to pick up a firearm and get in a gunfight, which would be terrible. Right. We want to prevent, prevent, prevent. Or if I have to, you know, maybe tackle someone from my principal and then it goes to the ground or, and then I'm also the medical piece. Right. So you gotta, you have to sell those types of things about yourself and, and, and put yourself out there and, and don't be afraid of ridicule, man. If you have value to add, you have things to say that you think are going to save lives, put yourself out there. Um, and then if people don't like what you have to say, Hey, their loss, you know, you can't if, please everybody. Exactly. You got to <laughs> believe in yourself. Number one, you have to, you have to be confident in yourself. And then you always have to be willing to develop and identify what's wrong with yourself to fix those goals as a, as a, I guess, if you want to do anything to an elite level, whether it's executive protection or, or whatever. But I can tell you right now that when I'm shooting or I'm very hard on myself when like, you know, so that's what it takes though. If you want to be, if you want to set yourself apart from your peers, I suppose. When you look at high performers, they have a very uh, heightened self-awareness, right? They know what they're good at. They know the gaps that they need to fill, and they go out, set forth, and do that. You're one of those individuals. Um, For those of you who don't know Adam well, um, he is also a master of the ice bath. Um, And if you follow him on LinkedIn, or if you start following him on LinkedIn, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna notice that very quickly. Uh, Myself, growing up in uh, Minnesota, I couldn't get far enough away from the winter climate, but uh, intimately familiar with those ice baths uh, as a former athlete. Um, Oh yeah, man, you rock those out uh, better than most people. Um, and then you get in there and you start having conversations. Um, and it just cracks me up. So before we close, I want to give you an opportunity to share where somebody listening that wants to follow you, wants to learn, um, more about, um, medical through you and, and look at what you're putting out there for your network. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to, to share where an individual may, uh, may find you. Yeah, sure. So you can find me on LinkedIn. You just search my name, Adam Bardwell. That's B-A-R-D-W-E-L-L. Um, I'm on there. I'm on Instagram. It's act- uh, my Instagram name is Bardgood. Uh, I tend to, you know, I, I, I'm a dude, man. I'm just trying to really advocate for veterans, um, advocate for tactical medicine, the things I like, the passions I like. I try to be positive, man. Like I'm doing the ice baths because they work. Um, you know, if you reach out to me, if anyone has any questions, I'd be happy to, you know, to ask, I talk a lot about like mindset stuff. I'm, you know, I've, I've recently opened up, you know, kind of been a lot more vulnerable on social media and things of that nature, but that's really because that's my journey to transitioning out my journey to how I deal with my past traumas and things like that. And I just want to share what works for me. And there's, there's no other motive than that. And, uh, you know, if you want to engage in a positive manner, dude, follow me. If you're going to be a hater or whatever. Don't. Simple as that. I love it, man. Well, uh, you are uh, the embodiment of uh, you know, a security practitioner, a uh, medical practitioner, and uh, you've, you've gone and, and kind of 
merge those together and uh, you're doing great work out there. So I would encourage anybody who doesn't follow Adam to uh, to give him a look um, and see what's out there. Great individual. You got a great team over there at uh, Global Rescue. And uh, again, I want to thank you for joining me today, coming on here. And uh, we look forward uh, to having you on again in the future. Cool, man. Thank you. I appreciate you having me, dude. It was great. It's great to reconnect again, man. Awesome, man. Well, hey, we'll be talking in the future and uh, we'll figure out a way to get you back. Uh, for everybody listening, I appreciate it. We appreciate it here at uh, Global Security and Protection Group Podcast. And uh, until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.